Hey everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 32, and today we're going to be talking about lumber thickness as an attribute and how you go about buying it. It's something that comes up a lot from new people to woodworking, but also new people to just a regular lumber yard. Oftentimes, if you're used to buying from a big box store or from a store that specializes in like dimensional lumber, like softwood, studs, and construction material, it all comes at a determined thickness. And the minute you go into a quote, real lumber yard or start buying rough material, the thickness quotient, hmm, it's a totally different situation. And if you're getting started in woodworking, and especially if you're building furniture, you may be faced with a lot of different thickness requirements. So we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about that. But first, I want to, first of all, say thank you. I've had, uh, I don't know, four or five new patrons since the last episode, and I just want to thank all of the patrons that have been um, supporting the Lumber Update over there, patreon.com slash lumberupdate. Very much appreciate it. Always great to, um, to get new patrons, to have people there asking questions. It's a great resource for questions. A lot of them I tend to just answer off the fly. If it's something I've already talked about on the show, or maybe it's kind of an amendment to something I've talked about on the show, a lot of times those questions can be answered right there in the forum. So not only do you support the show, but you also get kind of a nice uh, direct line to me for lumber questions, because some of them are just so specific, it doesn't really make sense for me to address them there on the show because it's not really gonna help anybody but the person asking the question, but I'm happy to do that. So there's my little plug. Please support the show, I greatly appreciate it. And thank you to all of the patrons, new, veterans, etc. Now, I've got some, um, some feedback actually from a previous episode that, when I was talking about shearing strength. And actually this feedback comes from Josh of Timber Woodcraft, whom I interviewed on the last show about solar kilns and about his business. So Josh says, regarding shear strength, I found that this is one of my main reference points when selecting a wood species for a specific project. I consider this before Jenka hardness because shear strength translates to workability. That's a very key point, Josh. For example, I love working with Eastern Red Cedar, Curly Cherry, and Walnut. They're relatively soft and just beautiful, but forget about it regarding shear strength. The knots and deviations in the grain can make these hard species, make these hard species to work with for some projects that require more consistent workability. Even if you find what appears to be a clear section, it can be difficult to work when a sudden grain orientation shifts under the hand plane. And what is interesting is red slash white oak and ash all much, much harder from a Janka hardness perspective, yet I find they work with a hand plane beautifully due to their shearing strength properties. If I'm jointing an edge, give me oak and ash any day over something much harder like maple or much softer and inconsistent like Eastern red cedar, curly cherry, or walnut. Josh, thank you. This perfectly illustrates what I've been talking about with these series of episodes about technical specifications. Not one of them is enough to really tell you how it's gonna work, but when you start looking at all of them together, you start to paint a little different picture. And specifically when we're talking shearing strength, the numbers that you're gonna find, if you Google shearing strength of species X, that number is, is a representation of a clear board. So the shearing strength of walnut and cherry and Eastern red cedar for that matter, is quite good. Like you look at that number and think these are great woods to work with. And in reality, they are as long as it's straight grain. But what do we know about cedar? It's very naughty. Same thing with walnut. Walnut is, is a field tree. It's not a forest tree. So it branches out very early and very low to the ground. So more often than not, it's really, really gnarly. Cherry, well, cherry's a fruit tree. And in many instances, it's also a field tree. 
A lot of the cherry lumber you're gonna buy at a lumber yard though is gonna be graded FAS or better. And that's specific, usually a plantation managed cherry grove that is, is grown specifically for lumber and it's not allowed to really branch out close to the ground and it gets a little bit, uh, it has a longer straighter bowl. But found naturally like as a wild tree, first of all, cherry doesn't do real well in a wild forest because the oaks and the maples and the poplars out here out east really take over and they grow up and they block all the light and they take the nutrients and the cherries often stay kind of small. But left to its own devices in a field with plenty of nutrients and plenty of sun, a cherry can grow quite large, but it will also branch out very early, very low to the ground, producing a lot of different knots. So Josh's point here is, even though he likes the look of cedar, cherry, and walnut, they are a royal pain to work with, because if you remember back to the last episode, Josh saws his own stuff, gets a lot of reclaimed salvage lumber, or what we may call urban lumber, and these are yard trees. These are trees that have not been pruned for a long straight bowl. They've just been let go. And you end up with a lot of swirly grain, a lot of knots, and those knots and that switchbacking grain throws that shearing strength number out the window. So you can look up cherry and see its shearing strength and compare it with something like maple and go, oh yeah, cherry's gonna be so much easier to plane, but it depends on the specific piece of wood that you're looking at. If it's really curly and it's got a lot of undulating grain and a lot of ingrain, it could actually be harder to work with than hard maple. Mm, hard maple is pretty hard to work with, but you get the point. And walnut especially, it's very difficult to find walnut in, in a clearer grade. In fact, the NHLA standards for walnut specifically are lower, uh, AKA allowing more defects in an FAS board because walnut just is not really a clear tree. And cedar, forget about it, not even close to clear. So again, think about all of these elements when you're talking about how easy is a wood to work, whether it's power tools, hand tools, or whatever. So thank you, Josh. Perfectly illustrated what I've been getting at with this few episodes. So from a, I don't know if we really call this an industry news update, but just in kind of my own personal world, um, the lumberyard where I work, we just bought a sawmill. <laughs> We're pretty excited about this. We didn't buy a sawmill. We bought a we bought an industrial version of a wood miser specifically to set it up in the back of our yard because we're doing a lot more larger timber. We were also finding ourselves getting into some situations where we need to actually uh, lay up um, composite flooring and we need wide flooring. So we're putting a veneer, a thicker uh, flooring veneer on top of like a plywood substrate and we need to be able to actually saw for grade some of the materials we're looking at. So it just ended up being easier. We have the contacts in the supply chain to get all kinds of lumber from all over the world and even be able to buy logs. Um, in most countries, it's actually illegal to export logs. But in many instances, if it's a veneer quality log or it's a log specifically being slated for transformation, a lot of times it can be cut from a log into a cant, just a large square version of a tree, and it can still be exported. So there's a lot of things to kind of figure out when you do that, but we actually have the ability to do that. And what we're finding is we can get better quality control by actually sawing it to a particular spec that a customer is looking for. So the good news and one of the little fringe benefits of my job is that we get cool stuff like this. Like I've been able to work with Hoffman joints using an industrial Hoffman joint machine, you know, using huge 48 inch planers. And, and now we've got this um, bandsaw that uh, I will I will give Matt Cremona credit. It doesn't quite have the 70 some inch capacity that Matt's saw has, but it's got a 67 inch capacity. This thing is awesome. And I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to play with it. Little fringe benefit, maybe take some stuff down on the weekend and uh, do some sawing myself. So, you know, I'm hoping actually this is going to enhance my own knowledge, my own experience 
of the sawmill side of things. So looking forward to that. I'll certainly be updating it as we uh, get more. Uh, I mean, it was literally just arrived. It's still in shrink wrap and we've got to actually set up a place for it and probably actually uh, pour, um, pour a slab where we're going to set it up so that it's nice and level and everything. But looking forward to uh, getting a chance to play with that. So main topic, as I alluded to in the opening, is about lumber thickness. And this was inspired by a question from Rob. And he asked the question and I responded and I immediately said, I've got to read this on the show because I know this represents a lot of people who are listening. And ideally, a lot of people who will be listening to this into the future because I get this question all the time about thickness and now I'll have some place to point them to. So Rob, let me just read his question. It's a little bit long, but I think it's important to uh, get the, the full breadth and scope of what we want to talk about here. He says, I have a question about lumber purchased from a for real sawmill versus a big box store. This is specific to thickness and please forgive my ignorance, but I got a fair amount of confusion going on here and a little bit of OCD. It's hard to tell in videos and images from blogs and YouTube, but most times it appears the raw lumber, um, and I assume he means rough lumber here, is thicker than three quarters of an inch. I went to a local sawmill and was excited at what I thought was seven eighths of an inch or better only to realize when I got home, it was three quarters of an inch. I even watched as they saw a large log and then automatically planed the board faces and edges before they even left the outfeed rollers. It didn't click till I got home. I'm not even sure a raw cut piece is one inch thick right after it leaves the massive saw blade. So I've seen bookcases and dressers made with thicker material and it's noticeably different in my opinion on, on the design. There's even an item or two at my church that uses seven eighths or better finished lumber. So I know that hand planing will reduce overall rough cut thickness, that's a given, but not like the three quarter inch stuff at the stores, at least I don't think so anyway. I wouldn't even think that a one inch plank as a standalone shelf, or excuse me, I would think that a one inch thick plank as a standalone shelf would better support books, less warp from weight. Now, let me just stop there. The, the term there really should be less sag from weight. Warp certainly will be controlled by the thickness a little bit, but what you're talking about is a static load from the books, which would be sag, has more to do with the bending strength and the um, stiffness, which we'll be getting to in a future episode. So then he goes on to say that in some of your, um, my, like Renaissance Woodworker videos, it appears that you have thicker stuff. And I'm sure the camera lies a bit. <laughs> the camera runs 10 pounds and a quarter inch of thickness. But seeing photos or videos of a simple blanket chest made in what appears to be one inch thick material ends up being three quarter inches in the cut list. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious here, what am I looking at when it comes to thickness? I'm kind of paraphrasing as I move through because there is a, a little bit, he talks about some of the other projects I've made that all appear to be thicker than three quarter inch. So the real question that Rob is asking is, what is the deal with thickness? If you go to a big box store and if you've gotten your exposure buying hardwoods or dimensional lumber from a big box store, it is all three quarters of an inch. You know, and there's that whole thing where we call it, you know, a one by six and it's actually three quarters of an inch by like five and a half or five and three quarters. And there was a big uh, class action lawsuit against Lowe's and Home Depot that now you will actually see that it is now labeled three quarter by five and a quarter or five and a half rather than one by six anymore. Truth in, in, in labeling, I suppose. But three quarters of an inch is kind of an arbitrary number, but now it's become the standard with lumber today. And as uh, Rob just said, he saw that they had sawn this log and then immediately planed it. Now that throws off alarm bells in my mind. If you've just sawn a board from a log, 
I don't care how long that log has been sitting around, the moisture content on that board is going to be high. That log could have been sitting in a log yard for several years and it's still going to be very high. So if they are sawing it straight off the log and then planing it on both sides, yikes. What kind of checking, first of all, you're gonna see in that and also what kind of warp. I mean, if it's coming right off the log and it's like a through sawn board, it's gonna be a wide board unless it's a really, really small tree. That brings up a whole other <laughs> regulatory question, but say you end up with a 12 inch wide board, you know, live edges on both sides, and then you're gonna plane both faces, that sucker is gonna warp like crazy, even if you remove similar material from both sides, let alone taking both edges. What we would call going from a log to S2S, surface on two sides, or S4S, surface on four sides. Now there are a lot of sawmills that actually do have a molder that they set up the various heads in order to pass a rough sawn board through and out comes an S4S board. You know, you've got four molder heads cutting both top and bottom and the two edges as it runs through that molder and you come out with this perfect S4S board. But generally that molder doesn't come into play until that board has been dried. So that's a little scary that your sawmill is actually planing right away. Now, it could be that there's many sawmills that are going ahead and skip planing because that actually can't help to dry the board out a little bit faster by exposing fresh grain all the way around. It will help dry things out a little bit more evenly. But in that case, they would absolutely saw it from the mill thicker and then set the planer to leave a thicker board. If what you were getting was a three quarter inch board right off the log and through the planer, that sucker is gonna potato chip on you and you're definitely not going to have much of a usable thickness at three quarters of an inch. You'll end up having to plane that down to quite a bit thinner. So um, I would rethink how much lumber I buy from that particular mill if that's a common practice for them. It might've been a very specific use case that they were doing that um, and maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe it actually didn't happen. Maybe what you were seeing go through the planer was something that was sawn earlier. I don't know. It sounds like he saw it get sawn from a log and right through the planer. I can't imagine wanting to do that. That would be a bad idea. But when you saw a board, you are sawing it heavy of the thickness. If you are specifically sawing four quarter material, you're looking to saw it to be one inch. In most instances, most sawmills are going to saw it heavy of one inch to one and an eighth, sometimes even one and a quarter because you're going to lose some of that thickness when the board is dry. When the board is wet, the, the fibers are all swelled up full of water. As that water leaves, everything shrinks, right? And the board will lose quite a bit of its thickness. So the whole quarter idea, and again, I've never been able to get anyone to actually absolutely directly confirm this, but lots of very old, uh, re now retired sawmill owners and sawmill operators have told me that the whole idea of four quarters refers to the detents on a log carriage. You know, think of a, a, of a hand miter box or not a power miter box. It's got those detents that lock the saw at 90, 45, 22 and a half, and maybe several others depending on the saw. The log carriage has the detents that lock it at a one inch cut, that lock it at a two inch cut, and lots of detents along the way, usually in about quarter inch increments. So if you wanna cut a one inch board, you move it out to the fourth detent or the fourth one quarter detent and you get four quarter lumber. If you want a two inch thick board, you move it out to the eighth detent or the eighth quarter and you get eight quarter lumber. That's really where that comes from. Again, I haven't been able to find anybody to disprove that, but I also haven't found anybody to definitely say, yes, that's where it comes from. But I've had multiple independent sources with a lot of experience tell me that's where they think it comes from.
The point being that four quarter detent can be adjusted, just like you technically could adjust the detent on your miter saw just by loosening some screws and sliding it back and forth or tuning up that saw to make sure it's sawing at 90 degrees or 45 or whatever. That four quarter detent is more often than not backed off so that your resulting rough sawn board is thicker than one inch. And as I said, one and an eighth is probably pretty standard, sometimes even thicker than that. And some people will actually back that off based upon the species that you're drying. Certain species have a much higher shrinkage and they're going to shrink up even more. Other species have problems like cell collapse. Uh, Peruvian walnut is particularly renowned for this. As it dries, you just get this uh, almost, almost light case hardening, but not case hardening, where the fibers themselves just kind of fall apart and you get this like divot in the board that um, where the cells have just collapsed on it if, if it's dried too fast. And really what that is, is there's quite a bit of shrinkage happening as it's going from really sopping wet to like 20 or 15%. There's a, a lot of shrinkage happening there. And sometimes the shrinkage happens so fast that the cell walls just kind of lose their structural integrity and collapse. So you get that like sinkhole in the middle of a board from that. So in many instances, Peruvian walnut is sawn even thicker. Four quarter Peruvian walnut. Well, what happens is it's like when we go to buy Nogal or Peruvian walnut, it's very difficult to find it in four quarter. Um, you end up having to buy it. The minimum thickness you can buy is five quarter because they recognize your net yield off of that is going to be lower because of that cell collapse and because of the, um, the radical amount of shrinkage. Lots of species like that. Um, Peruvian walnuts just kind of the first one that comes to mind. So again, the Sawyer needs to understand the end product, but also needs to understand the species to know whether or not I need to shave this a little bit thicker or I can get away with a little bit thinner. The end point being, when that board comes off the sawmill, we'll just keep with the idea of four quarter. If four quarter is what I'm going for, that log, or excuse me, that board should be at minimum one inch thick. Most good sawmills are going to be thicker than that. So there's another thing. If you go to a sawmill and they are sawing four quarter uh, straight from the wet log at exactly one inch thick, I gotta wonder why. Because that's not really a best practice because you're going to lose a lot of thickness. Now, once that board is dried um, and it's ready to be planed, you're sticking it through a molder more often than not because you're actually, rather than a planer that, you know, the board rides on the bed and the cutting head is, is over top and it's removing the top face. A molder can actually have multiple heads. So it's cutting, taking material off the top and the bottom. So you can run the board through a full rough sawn board and out the other side comes an S2S board. In that particular instance, it's just easier to set those cutters heavy to remove it uh, more than you, you really would need to in order to, to end up with a three quarter inch thick board. And that's kind of where three quarter material came from is they would um, set up the planer or the molder to take kind of a lighter cut and you can end up with like 80% of the board getting planed, but then you end up with that little low spot that's still rough sawn. Now today we actually call that skip planing where you don't expect to get the whole face, you just kind of run it through the planer and take a light cut off. And you know, the whole board may not be plain. Some of it may have skipped sections and end up being rough. But if you're actually trying to produce an S2S board, S2S is not skip plain. And if you have a mill that you're buying S2S from and you see those skipped sections of rough sawn material, send it back because they didn't do a thorough job. And they didn't actually give you true S2S material. Um, you know, depending on how they priced it, maybe they accounted for that, maybe not, but skip planing and S2S are two very different things. So what happens in order to avoid that skip 
as you dial up the thickness a little bit more, you take a heavier cut from your planer and you remove like a full eighth of an inch from both sides of the board. So if your roughs on board started at like one and an eighth and it lost an eighth during drying, so now you've got a one inch thick board, now you're moving an eighth of an inch from either face, you end up with a three quarter inch thick board that is S2S. And that is kind of where the whole standard of three quarter inches came from, from the, the most of the S4S and S2S lumber that you find at the big box store, it's three quarters of an inch. And that became the standard, you know, years and years and decades ago. And now it's just kind of what everybody shoots for and what everybody kind of expects, you know, and, and, you know, this email question is a perfect example of that the expectation is I'm getting three quarter inch material. But the question is, how do I get thicker stuff? Because I want some thicker stuff. I want full, you know, net one inch once I've planed it. So the the real reason that a lot of woodworkers and especially furniture makers really start buying rough sawn lumber is that we can control how much material is removed. And you can set your planer to take like a little kiss off the top, 64th of an inch, 32nd of an inch, and you can very easily take a four-quarter board through a power planer and end up with a seven-eighths thickness board, sometimes 15 sixteenths. You don't have to remove very much because the board is already relatively flat. And that's the beauty of having milling tools in your shop or hand planes in your shop and the ability to mill a board by hand and buying rough sawn lumber. It's kind of like this graduation period where suddenly you're working with rough, rough sawn material because you have more control over that milling process and have a lot more options. You can therefore then buy five quarter lumber and very easily end up with one inch thickness net once you've planed both faces flat and, and uh, parallel to one another. So that's the first thing is you may go to a sawmill and you really don't want them to do the planing. You want to buy the rough sawn material. Because here's the other thing. Say you buy a nine foot long board, but the piece you're making, the longest piece you need in there is really like 36 or 34 inches. Well, you could get three parts out of that nine foot long board, right? Three goes into nine three times approximately minus saw curves and all that stuff. But just for sake of argument, you're looking for 34 inch links, you could very easily get three 34 inch long boards out of a 108 inch or nine foot long board. Pretty easy. But think about this, a nine foot board is gonna have a decent bow anyway. And if you were to try to, to joint that nine foot board all as one, you're gonna take off a lot more material on the ends. If you take that nine foot board and you cross cut into those three 36 inch sections, that each individual piece is gonna be a lot flatter. This is why I always say the fastest way to flatten a board is with a saw, not with a plane or joiner or whatever. Now you take that 36 inch long board, you take it to your joiner, you take your joiner plane to it, whatever your, your um, tooling bent is, or you run it through your planer and you're gonna remove a lot less material and there you're ending up easily with a 15 16 board, no problem. In some instances, if that mill did saw particularly fat, they saw you know from the log one and a quarter, you might even be able to get a net one inch thickness out of that by being careful about your stock removal. It's less common these days because obviously people are trying to maximize the yield from a log. So rarely do you find a lot of sawmills that are sawing that heavy. Usually if they are sawing that heavy, there's another reason why, like the species, or maybe the tree was particularly prone to shake or something like that and they wanted to leave out a little bit more thickness there. Long story short, if you're looking for a one inch net thickness, it's better to buy five quarter lumber because you just got a little bit more material to play with. So, but here again, if you bought five quarter lumber and the mill is already surfacing it for you, they're gonna surface that down to one inch. Um, maybe, you know, depending again on the length and the, and the width spec, how much material has to be removed, you could end up with a board that 
is net one uh, net uh, one inch thickness, but it's not actually flat, which is a whole other issue, probably a topic for another show. Um, sawmills rarely have jointers. Some of them do. Um, more lumber yards have jointers than sawmills. Um, usually the lumber yard that is both sawmill and lumber yard may have some other jointer, but for the most part, they're running that rough sawn board through a planer, which is the feed rollers are flattening out bow or flattening out cup and they're planing the surface. And generally you will end up with a board that has two parallel faces, but it is not free of bow or cup. It's been pressed out by the feed rollers and then it springs back when it comes out the other side. And anybody who's ever run a rough sun board through a planer that has a fair amount of cup and bow knows that what you get out the underside is not necessarily flat. It's a good bet that you probably end up with parallel-ish faces, but not flat um, and, uh, to one another, or not, not perfectly flat along that longer length. Obviously, when you cross cut it down to a shorter board, your chances are a lot better of, of doing that because the shorter the board, the more pressure it takes to press out um, bow. So as you run that board through, as long as the board is referencing stably on the planer bed, you pretty much can get a good flat face. But again, we're talking about, this is the reason that we buy roughs on lumber because we have the ability to look at our project and say, no, I don't need nine foot lengths. Really all I need is 24 inch lengths. And it makes sense to do that cross cutting um, and even ripping, you know, if you've got a 12 inch wide board and all you need are four inch wide segments, rip that into three pieces because you're gonna eliminate cup real easy with that single saw cut. So here again, this is why we try to buy roughs on lumber. Now more and more retail lumber yards are selling S2S or S4S material on their racks because not everybody has a planer, not everybody has a jointer and they are able to move material more to a wider audience by planing that material. You also can get a better feel of what the grain looks like and, and you know, just look at that board and go, this would go to my project because it's already surfaced. Most of the retail yards I talk to and that I sell to all agree that they move material faster and better and, and actually move it at a better price because more labor has been poured into that to make that an S2S or S4S board. So if you're going to your lumber yard and all they're offering is S4S, I would ask them, can I get rough material? More than likely, they have that ability. They're either, if they're buying it S4S from a supplier like where I work, um, they can very easily buy rough. I mean, we still sell a lot of rough lumber, not nearly as much as we used to, but probably I would say less than 50% of the, the raw boards that leave our yard are rough. We do a lot more transformation work and mill work and stuff these days. So the, the amount of um, actual just boards we're selling is less than it was before. We still do sell the rough stuff, but yeah, the, the, the plain material, surface material is a lot more common because that's what's being requested by these various dealers. It's possible to get it. If you go to a dealer that has a sawmill, absolutely tell them, hey, don't waste your time planning it. I want it rough because I want that kind of control. You need to actually ask for it to be rough sawn. Think of that almost as like a grade. You know, it's not a grade, but a, a, a state. You know, surfaced, S2S, S2S, S1, you know, um, S1S, uh, S2S1E with one edge straight line ripped, you know, S4S, et cetera. Those are all states of, of work that can be done. You want to specifically request rough sawn material and make sure they understand, you know, that you understand what rough sawn material is. I want the rough edges straight from the sawmill because I want to do that work myself. So what that means is when you are looking at the, the material that you want to build your project, it gives you the ability to use thickness as a design element. And that's why I tend to 
fall immediately to furniture makers because you're not, the thickness doesn't really matter when you're talking about flooring because you could have a one inch thick floor and no one would ever know, you know, <laughs> unless you could actually see that, that flooring on edge, you're never going to know that it's one inch thickness, but you are going to lose some height in your room. <laughs> if you have low ceilings already, adding a thick floor is only going to lower the ceiling anymore, but it doesn't make sense because flooring you know, flooring is a nightmare when it comes to moisture control and not checking and bucking and all that stuff. So the thicker the board, the more moisture it's going to want to hang on to, which is why most flooring you're going to find is not three quarters of an inch thick, but five eighths of an inch or sometimes even lower than that. And the composite stuff, while it has a thicker face veneer than you would find on like plywood, you know, you might have three sixteenths veneer, maybe a three eighths veneer if it's a higher quality material put on top of a, uh, um, a plywood core, then maybe your total thickness gets to three quarters of an inch. But again, you'll never know, right? Because it's a floor, you're standing on it, you can't see the edge. Molding's the same way. There are some instances where you need um, a wider crown, but generally that's a molding that's been stacked or built up to get you that width, not one thick board. Because what do we know? If you, were to, if you had a huge, say eight inch wide crown, with a typical setback in the rake angle, you could end up with a board that needs to be three or three and a half inches thick to cut that out of a solid piece. Well, if you run a cove right down the middle of a three and a half inch thick board, that cove now becomes a hinge and that sucker's gonna cup like crazy and probably even going to check and split on you because you remove so much material from the middle of it. So the more stable way to build that wide crown is by gluing together multiple pieces or cutting that crown on a bias. So you're cutting bevels on the top and the bottom, and that's what you're gonna see when you go to Home Depot and you're looking at crown. The crown is flat, and the crown is generally only about five-eighths of an inch thick, and you've got those bevels on the top and the bottom that actually set that rake angle of the crown, and you don't end up having to use really, really thick material, which also means a lot of weight. You're now stacking a lot of heavy boards and, and nailing it to the top of your room. That's a recipe for disaster. So most of those thick moldings are built up and stacked using smaller pieces to create the larger um, pediment or capital molding that you may find in a particular room. But when you come to furniture, now you've got the ability to change the look and feel of the table by making that table an inch thick or an inch and a quarter thick. You've got the ability to build legs uh, in a table again, starting with eight quarter or 12 quarter material I mean, heck, if you're doing 18th century stuff and you want to put like a cabriole leg and a ball and club foot, you almost have to have 16 corn material to start with in order to have enough meat to carve that ball and claw at the bottom. All of these things add to the interest of, of furniture. Green and green furniture in particular loves to play with the reveals. So you may have like a sideboard that has four different thicknesses of parts in there and you get this step down or that reveal from the leg to the lower stretcher to the panel in between. Three different steps, three different shadow lines and that becomes a design element. And really once you start working with rough material and taking control over the thickness of the board, a whole new design world opens for you and you can do some really, really cool stuff. And that's kind of the that watershed moment, if you will, as a woodworker, when you start to take control of the milling process and going back to buying rough sawn lumber. So to kind of land this plane, if you will, if you are buying S4S or S2S material, it's a safe bet it's going to be three quarters of an inch thick. Some instances, like if you were to buy like from a Rockler or a Woodcraft, they will actually specify, um, and many times they're actually seeking out a little bit thicker material. And they'll actually specify this is seven eighths or 15 sixteenths because they know that woodworkers 
want or are gonna end up doing some milling themselves. They require a higher tolerance for flatness. So they're gonna buy that S4S board and go ahead and do some jointing and planing anyway, removing some of the thickness. That's a rarity. I mean, that's an instance where you've got franchises like Woodcraft and, and Rockler, whose target demographic are woodworkers who build furniture, who do a lot of this work. But here again, they're still buying surface material because a large volume of their customers may not have a planer. So they're, they're able to service more people by buying surfaced lumber. Rarely though, is that the case? Most of the time when it's surfaced on two sides, two faces already, it's going to be three quarters of an inch, but that's, that's become that gold standard, that de facto thickness. If you go to Home Depot now, you can find some species that come thicker and they used to market it as five quarter material. I think now they're just selling it as one inch thick. And I know if I go to my Home Depot, I can buy radiata pine in three quarter inch thickness and one inch thickness. For some reason that radiata, there, there was a market there for that thicker material. Every now and then I'll find a hardwood in a thicker cut and it generally will be sold specifically as that. And it's gonna be more expensive. Uh, in, a, in a Home Depot environment, it's sold by the linear foot. It's gonna be more expensive because you just have more material in there, uh, more board footage, if you will. So. This is the key change that you're gonna find when you move to a rough, or to a, a quote, real lumber yard. The primary identifier, and this comes back to buying the material. When you call a lumber yard or you walk into a lumber yard, the first characteristic you need to mention to them is the thickness. I'm looking for eight quarter cherry, you know, cause that's gonna point you to the right rack. It doesn't matter the width, it doesn't even matter the length right now because lumber yards are going to, for the most part, sort by thickness first and they'll put random width boards into one bin. Most of the boards tend to be around the same length and that's usually coming from the sawmill or just sawing more efficiently. If you've got a boards are a whole bunch of different lengths, your bins are set um, depth if they're stored horizontally or a set height if they're stored vertically. And it's easier to kind of have it all uh, more uniform. So that key identifier, especially if you're picking up the phone and calling somebody, the price is gonna be dictated first by thickness. Well, maybe first by species, second by thickness. Then you start getting into width and length. And really the price isn't dramatically affected by width until you start getting into really eight and wider, sometimes 10 and wider boards. Other than the fact that the wider the board, the more board footage means that the, the more the total price is, but the actual price per board foot really won't change much until you get above eight to 10 inches. It's not gonna change at all with four quarter by three or four quarter by six. That's pretty much all gonna be the same price point. But four quarter by six and eight quarter by six, two very different price points. So when you look at a price sheet, if the lumberyard even has one, you'll see it broken down by thickness first. Here's the four quarter cherry, here's the eight quarter cherry, the 12 quarter cherry. So it's important to know what thickness I need and more importantly, what thickness do I really need? You know, there's a lot of people who are really taken by thicker material, thicker lumber, and they go, oh man, I'd love to get some of that 16 quarter. And I say, well, why? What are you gonna do with it? Well, I could resaw that. Okay, yeah, you could, but resawing, first of all, is a lot of work, unlocks a lot of tension, and it's asking for trouble sometimes when it comes to warping. Unless you're dealing with a narrow board to begin with, it's just something that sometimes you might find yourself actually saving time and probably saving money. Because 16 quarter material is, is if just, this is not the case, but just say you had a four quarter board and say the eight quarter board price was twice that. So it was a dollar a board foot for four quarters, $2 a board foot for eight quarter. Generally, once you get to 12 quarter and 16 quarter, it doesn't just double. It goes up exponentially more. You'll find that, you know, $2 a board foot eight quarter is now 450 
uh, a board foot for 12 quarter and $8 a board foot for 16 quarter. 16 quarter is incredibly difficult to dry well. It takes a long time to dry and it has a very, very small market. So there's, you can saw 16 quarter and have it sit on the shelf forever and make no money on it. Or you can saw that log into eight quarter or four quarter and move it right away because there's a much greater market demand for it. So in order to offset that or ameliorate that, that long turn time and longer and greater labor involved in drying it and less yield for the 16 quarter, you increase the price pretty dramatically. So again, careful what you wish for. Sometimes you don't always want the really thick stuff. And I find that for most of the furniture you're making, four quarter and eight quarter, maybe five quarter if you're looking for one inch stuff, is the important stuff there. Getting above eight quarter gets to be troublesome more often than not. So again, um, I hope that the clears things up, Rob. There's a lot to talk about here. And please, if you have follow-up questions, let me know, because I'm sure if you've got the questions, a lot of other people listening to this will as well. Those of you who have been buying rough sawn lumber from a lumber yard for a while know exactly what I'm talking about. But think back to the first time you went. Think back to maybe when you first started woodworking, you were buying material from Home Depot or Lowe's or 84 Lumber or something or Menards you just got to imagine all lumber was this thickness, right? And then when you finally saw something thicker, um, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And Rob even said that. I watched a video on YouTube or I watched one of my videos and it's like, it looks like you've got thicker material there. Well, I do um, because I buy all my stuff rough and even my scrap boards, I've got a lot of stuff that I may have surfaced for another project and it's still one and a half inches thick because it was left over from a table leg or something like that. So it is um, very common in the furniture world to find a shop that's got a bunch of different thickness stuff in there. So yeah, that's, uh, wow, that was a long conversation. Um, but really, I think it's important to really kind of go back to basics and talk about these things because it's not just common knowledge. If you're getting started in this stuff, you will recognize that um, you know there's a lot more going on there. So uh, I do want to answer one email because this relates to um, my last episode with Josh from Timber Woodcrafts. Matt Cummel actually wrote in, which by the way, Matt just built a bed out of using black locust and way, way back to talk about the fluorescent properties of black locust. And as he was building, he sent me a picture and I said, throw a black light on that. And he did. And it was so cool to see the, the, the legs on this bed glowing in the dark. Just a neat little feature. I told him that I need to install black light in that bedroom now just for fun. But anyway... Uh, that was like episode 14, maybe even earlier than that. But Matt um, said he really liked the episode with Josh. And by the way, I've gotten some fantastic recommendations and I've got multiple um, conversations booked with a lot of different urban loggers, a lot of different sawmill owners and things. And we should be expecting to see more of those in the future. But the one question that Matt had about that interview with Josh was uh, what Josh called a tuning fork. And I immediately said, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it occurred to me later when Matt asked this that not everybody's gonna know what they're talking about. So if you go back to my episode on, on kiln drying lumber and the different like differences between kiln, or excuse me, um, dehumidification kilns, um, the various types of dry kilns, I talked about reverse case hardened material and that conditioning process that happens at the end of a drying cycle. And then we talked about what case hardening is. Well, if you really wanna test this stuff, when you got your board, you know, you think your board is dry, what you do is you go and you cut a slice off the end of the board. So a slice that's like, we'll just say um, an inch thick. 
But the key is what you do is you, you take your board, you go in about six inches from the end, you cut off a six inch piece, and then you cut another one inch slice off of that. So you've got this one inch slice that's not right at the end of the board where it's going to be the driest or sometimes drier than, than necessary. You cut it six inches in, so you're getting into the gooey center a little bit more of the Twinkie. Cut a one inch slice off there. Now with that one inch slice, imagine it's a six inch wide board um, and it's you know four quarter thickness. So I've got this, this one inch thick slice that is um, in cross section, it's the, the one inch thickness of the original board and it's six inches long. Now cut the middle out of that board so you get this two pronged fork looking thing connected right down at the bottom. And um, by the way, the feature and image of this episode is one of these tuning forks and I'll include it in the, uh, the um, show notes as well over at lumberupdate.com and I'll probably throw it out on my Instagram as well. So you've got this, this two pronged fork connected to the bottom but open at the top. Then leave that alone for like 12, 24 hours. And what will happen is if those two prongs at the top of the fork bend towards one another and touch, that board is case hardened. In other words, the outside of the board is drier than the inside and it's caused that inside to dry and shrink, pulling the two tines of the fork, if you will, in towards one another. If it goes the opposite and those two tines bend outward away from one another, that is now reverse case hardened. The inside of the board is drier than the outside. And that's actually what you should expect to see at the end of a kiln dried cycle before you inject more steam in and condition or reverse the reverse case hardening. That's that conditioning phase. And if you remember, Josh was talking about in his solar kiln, how that conditioning phase wasn't necessary because of the way the solar kiln does its job. And it ends up putting less stress on the wood and it doesn't require that conditioning, that injection of steam to reverse the case hardening. Now, you know a board is done. It's ready to come out of the kiln when you cut that tuning fork and the tines of the fork don't move at all. They stay straight up and down parallel one another. They don't bend out or bend in. Now the board has no case hardening or reverse case hardening and it's ready to go. And that's that tuning fork as we call it to, to determine is my stuff ready to come out of the kiln? So great question, Matt. I'm glad you brought that up because it obviously was just kind of thrown out in our conversation and we didn't explain that. And I probably should have stopped to explain a little bit more. So again, if you're totally confused, Go and um, if, you're watch, if you're listening to this episode on like your device or whatever, look at the featured image or go to lumberupdate.com. You'll see the image there as well. So that brings me to the end of this episode. I do really appreciate the, um, the question here that, that came in from Rob that really inspired this. It's a great question that I think holds um, a lot of merit to a lot of people who are just starting to buy rough zone lumber. So again, if you have questions, there is a whole form you can submit them to over at lumberupdate.com or you can hit me up on Instagram. Lumberupdate is my, um, my handle over there. And, um, you know, as I said at the outside of the show, you also can get pretty guaranteed chance that you'll get your question answered while they're on the show or by me if you become a patron of the show. Yes, I know that's extortion and I'm proud of it. So thank you everybody for listening. Go buy some rough sawn lumber this time and take control of your milling process. You'll have a lot more fun with your designs and I think a lot more fun in the shop.